This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Historic Souvenirs presents A Cyclist's Intrepid Journeys, adapted from his book Pedal Power. Roy Sinclair and his partner Harlico from Japan go cycling in Wales in 2006, visiting castles and revived narrow-gauge railways carrying tourists in their thousands deep in the Welsh mountains. Sleepless nights by firelight, the stranger in this town heard by talking long and singing songs I have laid my loneliness down so long days end with peaceful friends there is no richer one We arrived to a reluctant reception at the hotel at the top of the hill, found with difficulty after a steep climb, the occasion coinciding with everyone being near a TV set for World Cup 2006 coverage of international soccer. We have different motives for being here in Porthmadoc, where an historic narrow-gauge railway ran wagons down by the weight of their own gravity the 14 miles from the inland quarries of Slate. As cargo transferred from wagons into the holds of awaiting sailing ships, Slate reaches the markets for split rock to be impervious roofing in a soaring building boom. Once it's over and competing products enter the market, the demand for rail transport dwindles, just as the golden age of steam supersedes the horse-drawn wagons. Small locomotives, as well as now hauling up the empty wagons to the mines, took general goods and, finally, a carriage for passengers. It worked well, only the economics let it down. That's the heritage which might have been lost forever, but for determined rail enthusiasts who restored the route, the carriages, the steam engines and atmosphere of a bygone era. It displays similar resourcefulness, as did the Welsh Prince Madog, assisted by the engineer William Maddock in the early 18th century, to create a better place than hitherto as a port. The River Glaslin once found its way to the sea where a smuggler's hideout handled contraband through the hamlet of Lanfrothen. Today the ancient shoreline is imperceptible. The only living remnant of the coastal habitation a well-preserved building. Its strong rafters and arch-braced roof are of mountain oak. Its walls are from the 15th century. They bear the weight of nearly 15,000 slates. It's an impressive medieval church, rests on private land, gently sloping down to its long-lost shore. This is the historic church of St. Brothens, open to visitors through the owner's corporation, as long as we promise to shut the church entrance door on leaving, lest it let in sheep preferring to rest amid pews rather than pasture. 
That pasture is the more expansive thanks to the foresight of Prince Madoc and William Maddox, who see the potential for reclaiming land from the shallows along the shore. Farther along the coast, the eager engineer and Welsh prince correctly calculate that diverting the river with a mile-long causeway will scour a new outfall. They trust that by its current, the river will deepen an anchorage for bigger boats and expose land ample for a port. Their foresight, sophisticated for its time, encourages the settlement to grow. Named after the engineer, it forms the coastal town of Porth Madog. plan is to travel on the world's oldest operating independent railway to Blainau Festiniog, a mountain village 14 miles from Porth Madog. We know only that so attractive is it as a destination that what began as a railway taking to the world the fine slate construction material from the quarries of Snowdonia soon shifted to taking tourists to this rugged hardy region where Welsh is still the predominant language spoken by the villagers. It has several features not readily found in other places. The narrow-gauge railway keeps to the contours to reduce the risk of sharp inclines. Their rails are set just under 24 inches, 2 feet, or 60 centimetres apart, to cope with the twists and turns of terrain while horse-drawn rail wagons still fetch loads of slate from the quarries. From there, the force of gravity drives their descent from the quarry to port. When the first steam engines reached the railway, their design had bogey wheels for getting round tight corners, being one of the first British railways to adopt the design of an engineer, Robert Fairley, whose steam engines come coupled on separate bogies attached to a pivot point, letting bogies vary their alignment on rounding tight corners. To achieve this, it's as if two locomotives are built back-to-back, -back sharing a central firebox. One fireman can coal both boilers, leaving a lone loco-driver to control what are, effectively, two locomotives. A New Zealand adaptation of this design comes in 1872, when two locomotives are being built to our three-foot, six-inches gauge. One fairly locomotive, dubbed Josephine, is on display at Dunedin's Early Settlers Museum. But nothing beats seeing how the clever design works in action. At Porth Madog Station, we find a car park warden so friendly he offers to lock our fully packed bicycles in his shack, so small <laughs> he shan't have much room to brew his coffee till we return. We're both buoyed with enthusiasm on seeing the locomotive. It bears the name David Lloyd George, the only Welsh-born former United Kingdom Prime Minister. It's hauling a long rake of carriages. 
We share a passion for rail trips at Heritage. Harlequin is capturing photographs of all that surrounds the occasion. Unlike in the heyday of rail, the modern tickets are computer-generated. Our tickets stamped third class. These days, the locomotive's fuel is concocted of fuel oil rather than coal. It propels us up the steady incline, above where the original track is submerged under a dam reservoir, leaving it for rail enthusiasts to lobby authorities and raise the funds to reroute the old railway through granite rock above the lake so the line can survive, reopening to the public from 1955. As a tourist attraction, Blainau Festiniog and Welsh Highland Railway has risen to be the second most popular tourist activity in Wales, luring 200,000 visitors a year. Back with our bikes, kindly cared for by the car park warden while we explore the vintage line, we think souvenirs will revive our memories of the trip. We select a few souvenirs to pack ingeniously, ready for posting. That's to take at least eight weeks to get to New Zealand, says the bored postal clerk, stamping our parcel, C-mail. I say, that's okay, it'll arrive before we do. Satisfied we've been forewarned, the clerk tosses our parcel into the bottom of the bin, for what we suspect will be a long wait. To make the most of the afternoon, feeling fresh, we cycle on a winding forest road into the hillside village of Bejilet, meaning Grave of Gillette. Behind this lies a legend dating back to the 13th century of Gillette, the faithful hound of Llewellyn, Prince of North Wales. With his wife, he sets out by horse to hunt, trusting his faithful hound to guard their sleeping child at their home within the castle while they are gone. On their return, the hound springs up gladly to greet them. It's then they see his coat soaked in blood and their child's crib overturned, the covers shredded. Believing the hound has killed his heir, the distraught prince thrust his sword into his dog, Gillette. Then the moral of the legend emerges resembling many that survive in the folklore of Europe, of friends who suffer injustice. A British writer called by the village in 1854, taking time in his early fifties to travel, the Victorian gentleman George Burrow hoped to trace and document the tales of antiquity before they are lost. Wild Wales, its people, language and scenery, preserves that research. Each pedal stroke takes us deeper into the National Park of Snowdonia, rising from estuary to mountain top. Our destination is a tiny village, Riddu, where they take bookings for campsites nearby. Wales won't allow wild camping in its national parks. The official demands to know how many weeks we'll be staying. Oh, just one night. My replies greeted with a glare, a grunt. We dine gloriously by a lakeside, our shopping for convenience food, including for the first time black pudding, which if Harlico only knew is actually a large dark sausage made from pig's blood, fat and grain, 
according to the Oxford Dictionary. The pub supplies a dry, white table wine to go with it. The Riesling wine kept chilled by a generous bag of ice as the sun sets over a lake. It's my carrying a tiny Sony tuned to the BBC's Radio 4 that brings us face to face with reality. The physical ill effects of high cholesterol, for example. It's a delight to listen high in these mountains to the British brand of humour they do so well. Their radio correspondent reports from a cow paddock, the dairy farmer at a loss for words, how to tell Daisy and her dairy herd they have too much cream. It won't do. Consumers call for change. It may take some time, pipes up the farmer's spokesman. In the United Kingdom, the Westminster parliamentary tradition runs deep. The House of Commons hotly debates the loyalty of an honourable member opposite who represents Wales. The question is, does he or does he not support the World Cup English football team? Now, that's put him truly under the nation's scrutiny. The MP knows it, searches for a non-committal answer. While living in his London flat... He flies the flag of the English supporters, he says. Were he not in the London flat, but in Wales? Then, probably, he'd not display so blatantly the flag outside. Debate swirls back and forth until the harassed Welsh MP seizes the initiative. Are the honourable members aware of the business yet before the House to deal with? Adding, as if an afterthought, the game against Trinidad is due to start at five. The question of the MP's football allegiance is forgotten. The parliamentary business of the day resumes with utmost expedition. Harlico, always interested in timetables, has one she found, featuring the Welsh Highland Railway. Rail enthusiasts' project to revive that line, joining it to the one we went on yesterday, is well advanced for the future. It promises 70 kilometres of continuous narrow-gauge railway once the remaining few kilometres are laid through difficult terrain to link the two. The Welsh Highlands locomotive pants into Riddu, a popular starting point for the climb to the summit of Mount Snowdon, or its tracks a challenge for the mountain bikers. We find the carefully restored old technology fascinating. Once the hill hikers go... Few passengers remain. We board again for the onward journey. Our bicycles safe in a stand provided in one of the wagons. We focus on the leisurely landscape slipping by. Our steam engine is one famous from photos in its pastoral, chuffing through the hills of Natal, South Africa. I delight in hanging my camera out the carriage window, capturing images of the engine steaming round the tight curves. We're descending the mountains to Carnarvon Bay. Back on our bikes we ride round the great Carnarvon Castle. Its medieval walls still enclose the town where we need find somewhere to stay, chancing for the first time a night's bed and breakfast, a British institution. The landlady shows us to a room, often having an ensuite. Once we're spruced up, we venture outside to find somewhere to eat. There's a waterfront pub where Harlico spots diners doing justice to a huge Yorkshire pudding, she says. Roy, 
What is that? I want to try it. She often mentions how heavy is New Zealand's cuisine compared to delicate Japanese dishes. Yet this huge plate of Yorkshire pudding, moulded by a bowl to get a thick crust, fatty brown sausages, peas and carrots mixed in a stack of pub chips surrounding the pudding. Haliko licks the plate clean. I can't believe it. Everything for her is different here. But for me, it's harder to feel far from home when so much looks familiar. Faces in the crowd, the popular music, the food, and, yes, along the restaurant's front, a healthy row of flowering New Zealand cabbage trees. Even the advertising signs of my youth, promoting tobacco, are exhibited vestiges of a fast-fading culture. Tomorrow we'll say farewell to Wales, where these hardy folk cling to a culture preserved despite invasions by Romans, Germanic tribes from Central Europe, such as the Angles, Saxons and Jutes, and by the Normans nearly a millennium ago, and finally by the English. So far this summer of Britain has been brilliant. Now we perceive a change is in the offing. The locals know it. We're riding to town when we stop to let lots of hikers cross the road. Each is decked out in wet-weather gear. We don't envy them having slippery trails to walk, shrouded in cloud along the way up to a national park. We'll take a route close to the coast on bikes, completing 111 kilometres for the day to cross the border to an old mansion which is where we find in this attractive timbered town, Cheshire's YHA. Chester, a walled cathedral city with population in the 70,000s, once a Roman fort, was one of their main army camps. The Angles strengthened its walls against the Danes. It's one of the last cities in England to fall to the Normans, who built its castle dominating the city and nearby Welsh border. It's the last piece we'll have for a while as we plot our course to John O'Groats to the end of our journey. Harlico appreciates the true English breakfast, fried or poached eggs, hash browns, bacon, and sometimes sausages as well. It's so nutritious it must almost do for the day for what we now face. A journey to the hell of heavy industry pouring out pollutants. Factories process ore, glass, metal, paper, plastic and chemical compounds into useful products. But the price is high in damage to the environment and its cost in human health since the Industrial Revolution. A gloomy sky looks appalling. Whether from smoke or cloud is hard to tell. It's depressing. We're like aliens, cyclists vying to share the bridge with high-speed, uncompromising drivers on the A557, an arterial route from Liverpool to Manchester. We wonder which is worse, cycling high on the suspension bridge above the Mersey River, or, if it were legal, cycling under the river through the two-mile Mersey Tunnel, the longest underwater tunnel in the world when it opened in 1934. As we come off the Mersey Bridge, we need to select a lane leading to our goal. But how, while traffic is moving so much faster than we do, a truck driver, realising our predicament, slows to our speed in order to shield us from overtaking traffic. We appreciate his kind gesture. 
Is he himself a cyclist? In places along the highway, I see signs for cyclists, yet it's surprising not more is done to help cyclists heading for John O'Groats, a route now world-famous. We prefer quieter roads, not only for our safety, but because we've many opportunities to deviate when something unexpected or out of the ordinary arises. Take the town of Rainhill, for example. Nearly 200 years ago, it's the scene of a demonstration of steam power for locomotion. In 1829, George Stevenson and his son Robert, having built the rocket, challenged the inventors of two rival experimental locomotives to a race. A sponsor offers a big prize for the steam locomotive best able to carry a 20-ton load over nearly two miles. In effect, that contest is to select the steam engine to launch between Liverpool and Manchester, the world's first rail passenger regular service from the following year. Yet the only apparent recognition of this race at Rainhill is to name its local pub, the Rocket. On reflection, the Rocket shares several similarities with the humble bicycle. Both have most of their working parts visible. Neither has any great suspension to speak of, so every bump in rail or road is less than comfortable for those who ride them. I marvel at framed pages of three October 1829 issues of Mechanics Magazine, displaying detailed drawings of the three competing locomotives. Rocket is definitely the classier machine, with its ingenious multi-tubular boiler and a blast pipe to direct exhausted steam up the tall chimney, creating a draught through the fire in the boiler. It's interesting how credit for that much-advanced locomotive goes to the 26-year-old Robert Stevenson, whereas it's his father, George Stevenson, who history records as being the instigator of the first locomotive hauling a train of 38 carriages laden with goods and passengers at a top speed of 12 miles per hour. A clue to how the British cherish trees and natural vegetation is their reluctance to trim foliage overgrowing road signs on secondary routes. Time and again we cycle past signs, blaming each other when we end up going the wrong way, having to backtrack. It's because foliage camouflages road signs we miss, blithely cycling on till we realise we're off course. In the countryside, we can cope, putting our tent up if caught out in the open. But in built-up areas, losing the way causes complication in finding a campsite or other haven for the night. This unsettles Haliko, who ceases to see the funny side of having nowhere to lay our pillow. She's clearly feeling the strain of the day, and at the best of times... Japanese culture has difficulty with uncertainty, anxious to relieve the strain. Despite my agnostic leanings, I pray for an answer, an abode just right for two travellers in the night. There's no manger to sleep on hay, so we try the tavern idea. It's a pub whose patrons tell us of a bed and breakfast beside the railway in the neighbouring town. We follow this advice into a hilly part of Lancashire. The village of Pabold, fortunately, is downhill. 
It lies on the Leeds Liverpool Canal, built in the late 1700s. Our destination's the Douglas Valley Hotel, which, whether by chance or divine intervention, is hard to say, has one of its semi-permanent residents away. So, a spare room. Our jolly middle-aged host fusses about getting it tidy. In our circumstances, it's a godsend. Next door's Chinese takeaways. Across the road is a village pub adorned with flags supporting England in the World Cup. We're amazed at that hotel's display of railway memorabilia. Its paintings recall the heydays of steam travel on tracks that radiate from nearby Liverpool. Today, the line to London leads through the middle of town, taking two hours for the journey. However, our mode of travel is more leisurely, and Harlico and I are smiling again. Next day, we explore Parbold and its surrounding countryside, crossing a canal on a quiet road beside where narrow boats berth. We linger, watching a boatman lean over the water to offer three graceful swans a treat. From Lancashire, we're heading for the mountainous lake district that covers parts of the counties Cumberland and Westmoreland, best known to tourists, propelling our journey well into northern England. Our destination tonight is the Grand Youth Hostel on the shores of Lake Windermere, Ambleside YHA. Here we'll pause a day, hoping it'll stop raining so we can see, at its best, what makes the Lake District so famous. We do invite you to join us again at the same time next week to hear another in the series based on the journeys of Harlico and Roy Sinclair of Christchurch. This program, Historic Souvenirs, is broadcast on Free FM 89.0, proudly supported by New Zealand On Air.
Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.